mysterious tunnels that no one understands, a strange illness that may be evidence of a new weapon, and five boys go missing for years, only to be found minutes from their home. Today we explore three mysteries you've likely never heard of, and will leave your mind whirling in a sea of confusion. It's gonna be rad. Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden, your favorite podcast hosted by me. And who am I? Just some dude named Brad, a rocking former criminal defense attorney who loves to talk to trying, but we're not going to be doing that this week, I'm afraid, because we aren't really going down the true crime route today. We're doing something that falls more into our hidden category of the show, three mini-mysteries you've likely never really heard of, or if you have, you probably don't know much about, or maybe you're an expert on all these and I'm just making a fool of myself. The reason why we're not going our traditional route is because this week sucked for me. I had some pretty significant mental health issues going on and I spent a lot of time in bed, so I didn't feel like I really had the proper wherewithal to, you know, deeply research into a serial killer or a cult or anything fun like that. And going the mysterious route, the hidden route, is usually a little bit easier as far as the research goes. So that's why we were pushed down this aisle. This is what you're going to get. Blame the stress of being a former trial attorney on my fragile mental state, okay? But enough banner for me. We're just going to jump into the sucker as we love to do, right? Right. Now, despite the fact that we've done a pretty decent job mapping the Earth, or at least the dry portions of it, we've, you know, eliminated a lot of the mystery from the world that, as kids, we love to have, you know? We love going exploring in the woods, or even if we're more of the indoor kid variety, playing video games just to see what new challenges and new areas await us. Because we've been so good at exploring, we've kind of eliminated some of that mystery to history and it's rare that we come across something that kind of boggles our mind anymore but this is one thing that to this day scientists can't really explain why they exist how they exist anything along those lines we are talking about the Erdstall tunnels now being a self-centered american like i am i had never heard of these odd creations so if you fall into the same boat of dummies I travel the world in, here's a brief overview of what these tunnels are, okay? There are about 2,000 of these structures throughout Europe. Bavaria, of all places, is known to have the most of these tunnels, around 700. But Austria, France, Great Britain, they all have a pretty fair amount too. These tunnels are not like you would expect when I say the word tunnel. Uh, they were small. Very, very small, especially if you're claustrophobic. Uh, they would be nightmarish, I think. I think the biggest one that's been found stands a whopping 1.4 meters tall, or that'd be 55 inches. And the maximum width we found of one is all of 60 centimeters. That's a roughly 24 inches. Okay, so we are talking tiny here. 
And again, there's 2,000 of these Erdstall tunnels running across Europe. They often connect when you enter one of these tunnels, if you're brave and stupid enough to explore them, eventually you'll notice that there's these little holes that lead either up or down into other tunnels. These are called slip passages. And as tiny as these tunnels are, the slip passages are even smaller. I never saw specific numbers, but many of them I read were too small for most adults to squeeze through, especially when you're already in that earthworm position anyway. You know, if you're just wallowing through and your shoulders are touching the sides of the earth and your butt keeps hurting the, the rocks above you as you kind of wiggle on through. And then all of a sudden there's a hole above your head. How are you supposed to contort into that? I mean, some folks do, but normal folks, I, I don't know. So these tunnels, they must be important. They were obviously constructed by mankind. The walls are sanded down so they're nice and shiny and smooth. What's the point of them? Uh, well, so far, this is what we found in the tunnels. Nothing. Literally, nothing. No archaeological material has ever been found in any of these tunnels. The best we've got is, for example, there's a tunnel near Bad Zell in Austria, which contained evidence of a fire pit near its entrance. And those science nerds were able to determine that the coal used in the fire dated back to sometime between 1030 and 1210. There have been other minor archaeological discoveries like this at some other openings. Most of them have been fire pits. There's been a few pieces of ceramics found, but they all roughly date back to the same time period. If you need hard numbers, from what I understand, we're talking between 950 to as late as 1268. All, all of these tunnels squarely, or all this evidence squarely puts us in the Middle Ages as to when these tunnels were constructed. These tunnels are odd, obviously. Why would people spend all this time and energy and resources to make such small tunnels that normal people can't, you know, fit through? There's other oddities that go with them. Um, for example, they tend just to have the one opening. You have an entrance and an exit that share the same door. Another strange thing about these tunnels is it's common for the openings to be concealed in some manner. So you wouldn't just be walking along a path and see an opening to one of these tunnels. You'd have to know where it is and look for it. And on top of this, these tunnels weren't long. I think 50 meters, roughly 160 feet, is considered about as long as they typically get. I'm sure there's a few that stretch that a little bit, but that's the accepted length of them. Now, archaeologists have been able to divide these tunnels into kind of four rough categories, okay? There's the Type A tunnel. These are basically just a single long gallery that have slip passages to other levels uh, usually the tunnels just run parallel to each other. And these tunnels are also have the unique distinction of having sloping walls where they kind of slope up from the ground into the rock and um, are shaped more like that. Whereas the other tunnels are more of your traditional, you know, uh, half circle kind of, 
you know, I mean, when you think of a, a, a tunnel from reading some sort of, you know, fantasy literature or something like that, that's, that's what you typically see. But the Taipei's have this angular but smooth wall. Now, type B tunnels definitely have multiple levels connected by multiple slip passages. And one, the, the main oddity in the type B tunnels is at the end of all the major tunnels in the group, there'll be this little chamber. It's not any taller than the rest of the place, but it has a chamber that has a bench carved into it, almost as a seating area. And again, we're talking about a place that you'd have to crawl through like an earthworm to get to this little alcove that you can't stand up in. Uh, the, from the pictures I've seen, you know, most of these people that love spelunking, they can get in there and put their butts on the, the bench and be hunched over pretty good, but that's about as good as it gets. All right, so type C tunnels. These are tunnels that also have lots of slip passages, but the main tunnel is larger than average. The, these are the ones that have the high ceilings, the ones where you can almost stand up in it. And then type D tunnels are more like a series of small chambers connected by the slip passages. So little, instead of having tunnel, tube-like tunnels, you have kind of square rooms connected by holes. Now, some claim that these tunnels, if you really explore carefully and you're very diligent, can actually get you from Scotland all the way to Turkey without ever seeing the sun. But that's a myth. Scientists have explored enough of these that they don't see any connections. All these tunnels are self-contained. They don't connect up with other slip passages that take you to a new series of tunnels. They're all self-contained little infrastructures, okay? At least based on what we know so far. We haven't found any hidden doors that connect them all. Okay, let's throw a little bit more weirdness on top here. There's no recorded history regarding these tunnels. At least contemporary history for the time. That's probably the wrong way to phrase it, but that's how a dumb lawyer phrases it. We don't have any records of how they're constructed, who constructed them, why they were constructed. We don't even find evidence of like people being hired to build the tunnels, people getting paid to build the tunnels, you know, receipts for materials used in the tunnels. No monk ever sat down and wrote how annoying it is to have this construction going on right close to his favorite, you know, flower garden or whatever. It just, if you went purely through historical texts, these tunnels just do not exist. With one exception, there are writings of these tunnels beginning in the 1400s, but all of these writings are the same writings we're doing today. What the heck are these things? Why are they here? And even in the 1400s, they had this ancient mythological quality to them. Locally, in a lot of the local folklore, the tunnels are named after the types of dwarves or elves believed to be inhabiting them. Haven't found any dwarves or elves in there, but I don't know that we've really been looking. I know you look at this and you say, okay, nice story, but 
surely we have an idea of what these tunnels were used for. I mean, we've had lots of PhDs and other folks studying them, researching them, exploring them. We're smart folks. We have to have an idea what what why people made these itty bitty mazes way back when. And the answer is we kind of sort of maybe have a bit of an idea. All right. Now, the initial thought was these tunnels were, say, escape tunnels. You know, that's the easiest example. There's always villages being raided back in the Middle Ages, always little disputes between petty noblemen. And so you build these tunnels, you make them small enough so that people in armor can't get in them, horses can't get in them, and then your populace can escape from what's coming on and be led to safety which is a good idea, but it doesn't hold up under the evidence, all right? First of all, as we mentioned, there's no exit. The exit and the entrance are the same. So if you are trying to hide from invaders, you could certainly squeeze your way into these tunnels, but you wouldn't really have a way to get out. All they need to do is post a couple men on guard duty at the entrance, and you're stuck until they leave. Second of all, why would you design escape tunnels where you can't rest, where you can't have any comfort whatsoever? I mean, think about it. Today, for us to explore, we're sending professional spelunkers in there with all sorts of equipment they need just to make sure they're safe. You turn the clock back a thousand years. You don't have these same precautions. And what are you going to do? Lay there in a tunnel smelling the guy's boots in front of you until the bad guys go away? I mean, certainly that's possible, but that seems like a stupid way to protect your populace, right? There's also another big problem in that because the entrances to these tunnels were kind of hidden or concealed, airflow is not great in these tunnels. And so it's very likely that if you tried to cram... 30, 40, 50 villagers into some of these tunnels, they would start dropping dead from asphyxiation. Additionally to that, let's say that they're used to hide from invaders, and let's say and at some point in history, with all of these tunnels that have been built, there had to have been at least one occasion, right, where the invaders saw them skipping into these tunnels and either pursued or just choked them out until they died, okay? Again, we have yet to find any evidence of any archaeological value in these tunnels. So there's no dead bodies that have been found. There's no tools, no clothing, no weapons, nothing like that. They are totally, totally empty. So all of those factors kind of cut against these being any sort of hidey holes or escape routes. All right, so the next most popular theory is, well, then they had to have been used for storage. You know, you burrow down into the ground, right? That keeps the temperature constant. It won't get really hot. It won't get really cold. And that way you could keep a lot of things from spoiling. Another fair guess, but there's some problems with this. First, again, no archaeological remains of anything. So that means if we believe this was truly some sort of village pantry, whenever they were done with it, they meticulously cleaned out 
every bit of goods that were in there. I mean, they didn't leave a bag of flour or nothing. All right. Because these tunnels were built typically at a downward angle, this would mean water would become a problem. Rainwater could get in there, go down the tunnels, make it wet. Some of them were built under kind of the the um, oh uh, the water line. I forget the word. And so that meant you know if the nearby river or lake picked up a few extra gallons, you may start seeing water seep into these tunnels, and that's not great for storing things. So it wouldn't make a ton of sense, and we would expect to find some evidence, because why would you take the time to clean all these out? Additionally, there's just kind of the logical convenience argument. Why would you build a storage that's so inconvenient <laughs> that only small children could get into? That's, you know, that limits the usefulness of it as a some sort of storage locker. You know, you really shouldn't be scared to have to wiggle through some rocks to get your grain. That's just my thoughts, at least. So what we've kind of landed on is, as a scientific community, the most accepted explanation for these tunnels is they had some religious meaning, which is kind of a good catch-all, isn't it? What What's the religious reason for having these tunnels? I don't know. We don't know. That's just our best guess. Local folklore, again, has the funnest explanations, of course. Some areas believe that these tunnels were built and created as kind of like hangouts for souls when people died. And they were waiting to determine, I guess, where they were going to spend their afterlife. They could hang out in the tunnels until that decision's made. Just kind of a cool idea, I guess. Uh, others claim that they were demon traps. You could get bad spirits lost in them and they wouldn't be able to find their way out. Uh, and some folks, uh, particularly in the Austrian region, claim that goblins build them and that's really all humans need to know. If you're interested in seeing these tunnels, again, they are literally from Scotland to Turkey, almost every country in Western Europe is going to have some somewhere. But if you want to go into them, you're kind of out of luck because almost every tunnel is not open to the public because of the safety risk and having, you know, bad American tourists try to squeeze into these little tunnels, getting stuck, and then them having to grease them up in butter and pull them out. We don't want that. They don't want that. That being said, there are a very, very, very select group that are open to the public, either just to allow you to kind of poke your head in and see what it was like, all the way to there's one tunnel outside of Perg, Austria, that will let any doofus go through the tunnels that wants to give it a shot. So, you know, if you're if you're down with exploring really small, tight places and you happen to be going to Austria, and you can swing by Perg, you can check one out in detail. But that's kind of all we know about these Erdstall tunnels. And so congratulations, you now know as much as almost anybody in the world about it. Put it on your resume. It's great at cocktail parties. 
But people continue to search, and as we continue to use new technologies to scan down to see if we can learn anything more about this, all we're finding are more tunnels that are totally empty with no clues left behind. Now we've got a mystery that combined two things I didn't think really could be combined, although I am naive. Uh, medicine and spycraft. Okay. It's, you may have heard of it actually because it got some press attention a few years ago, but not many people really know the story on it. I know I sure didn't, but it's this mysterious illness called the Havana syndrome. Okay. It was first reported in 2016, and this was just a year after the United States and Canada restored diplomatic relations. It's called Havana Syndrome because the first and for a while only reports of this illness were coming from United States and Canadian intelligence and diplomats who were stationed in Havana. And what was strange about it is, you know, in the world of diplomacy and all that, if you're appointed an ambassador or you work as a diplomat or whatever, you're working, at least in the United States, you're working for one of the branches, one of the agencies of the executive branch. And when you get put on these postings, a lot of times your family goes with you. So what made this strange is the only people who are feeling affected by this illness were the people who actually went to work in some sort of embassy or diplomatic building. And then when they would come home, they would start experiencing the symptoms. Their immediate family that was living with them never did. And this was very confusing. Now, the symptoms are kind of, they're, they're a little broad, but they all kind of relate to the head in some degree or another. Okay, so... These are the most common symptoms that people who have had the Havana syndrome have reported. Pain in either one or both ears. Heavy pressure feel, felt throughout the head, particularly in the sinuses. Tinnitus, hearing loss, vertigo, nausea, visual problems, memory loss, and general cognitive difficulties. Now, while this hasn't been reduced to like a formal diagnosis, you know, like shingles or anal herpes, it is kind of recognized as an unofficial health issue. And we've also learned from studying the people that have come down with it, it actually has some pretty long-term health consequences. For example, one unidentified high-ranking diplomatic agent from the U.S., after suffering from the Havana syndrome, lost most of his hearing and now has to wear hearing aids to get by. There are various reports in various newspapers and other journals of there being actual brain injuries that show up on various scans. Now, again, this first started in 2016. That's when we have the first reports of it. As of February 2022, which was the most recent data I could find on it, approximately a thousand cases of Havana syndrome have been reported officially. Now, naturally, when these first reports of illness start happening, 
the U.S. government took the stance, well, somehow Cuba has to be involved. This is just too weird. And so the U.S. government actually made the decision to kind of go to a skeleton crew at all diplomatic buildings in Cuba and the embassy. Just enough to be able to get work done, but no extra people. They trimmed all the fat, I guess you could say. Former President Trump even publicly called out the Cuban government for these problems, saying that these illnesses were a most unusual form of attack. The U.S. even formally expelled two Cuban diplomats over this issue. Meanwhile, in Canada, they kind of took the same approach. They immediately withdrew all families from Cuba. You couldn't take your family down there. And they reduced their diplomatic staff as well. Several of the people who came down with the Havana syndrome who were Canadian citizens sued the Canadian government for not taking steps to protect them from this assumed and perceived attack. And during the lawsuit, the Canadian government acknowledged that the 14 plaintiffs all suffered from concussion-like syndromes, but with no known cause for the health problem. So we're not talking about something where people are, you know, we're, we're not hunting for Bigfoot here. We're not relying on a few video recordings, audio recordings, and lots of tales from mountain folks. We are dealing with government officials in two different governments taking steps to protect its diplomatic force because it perceived this to be a real and present danger to its people. It's, I mean, on a very real diplomatic level, this syndrome has been acknowledged and it exists in the minds of those who deal with it. Now, sadly, the FBI, the CIA, and the State Department of the United States have all attempted to investigate this phenomenon, but the results have not been encouraging. You know, kind of what we learned... 20 plus years ago, it's the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Different law enforcement agencies within the U.S. government just cannot work together. Here, the CIA is blamed for, mo for most of the stonewalling. It says it's not releasing any information on any of its agents, whether they got sick or not, because it doesn't want to run the risk of them being compromised. A classified report was obtained by the Associated Press in 2018 where the FBI had reached a conclusion in private that the attacks were not the result of a sonic weapon, but they couldn't otherwise explain it. They could only eliminate that possibility. Meanwhile, the State Department created its own kind of internal review board to try to investigate this mystery on its own. So we've got multiple investigations going on by multiple various agencies, and they're just not sharing any information with each other. You got to love bureaucracy. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, Cuba at first kind of bowed its chest and told the U.S. and Canadian governments, y'all are crazy, back off. But soon thereafter, it changed its tune and agreed to investigate with the investigations. But in true United States style, we wanted Cuba to investigate, but we wouldn't share, or the U.S. government wouldn't share any information with Cuba. So they were kind of poking around in the dark. They, 
did send a hefty amount of scientists and police officers to investigate this. Ultimately, this joint effort by the Cuban government found no evidence of any toxins or electromagnetic waves or even insects that they believe could be the cause of these health issues. And Cuba was very aggressive in saying, we've done the best we can, but without some cooperation from the U.S., who, oh, by the way, wanted us to do this investigation, we can't go much further. We're done. Now, apparently, some information seemed to have been shared with Cuba at a later date, although that's not official anywhere. But I think we can make that assumption because Cuba opened a new investigation in 2021 into this and appointed a very special panel of, you know, the best and brightest scientists and detectives and military officials they had who could look into this. And the, the panel did its investigation and it produced a report and the report said, we can't find any energy source that could cause the brain damage we're seeing with such laser-like precision. Which I take that statement to mean everybody who has suffered from Havana syndrome has suffered this brain damage in the same part of the brain, which is kind of a big deal to me, you know? I mean, we've got some sort of mind snipers from some foreign power that's targeting U.S. and Canadian officials. That's a little scary. You can't just account for randomness aligning up so perfectly in all of these in all of these patients. The U.S. and Canadian government did kind of do a joint study together into this. They hired doctors from the University of Pittsburgh to study 21 of the affected diplomats from both countries. Doctors could not begin to offer an explanation for the injuries, but were able to more precisely document the injuries. And they were of the opinion that all 21 of the diplomats had suffered brain damage consistent with what you would expect to see from someone who suffers persistent concussions to the same part of the head. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States was also tasked with researching this mystery. They produced a report. Of course, it was classified, but of course, it got leaked by BuzzFeed News of all places. They studied 95 patients, and in the course of doing so and interviewing them, the CDC came up with its own definition for what would be considered Havana Syndrome. And using its own definition, of those 95 patients, only 15 clearly fell within the scope of their definition. There was another 31 that possibly meet the definition. They're kind of like, like when you throw a shirt in the laundry basket and have, you know, one sleeve is hanging in, one sleeve's hanging out. That's what these 31 were. The other 49 patients, the CDC felt confident they could explain their injuries from other known conditions. But interestingly, this report seemed to intentionally shy away from discussing the brain injuries. It was focused much more on whether or not these, these group of people 
had consistent injuries so that we could classify it as one thing, which I guess is helpful to some degree. Now, again, the U.S. and Canada initially blamed this on Cuban forces, but many in the U.S. government have kind of openly suggested, but not to the point where we'll go on record, that Russia really is behind this illness. And there is a history of this. Russia is known for trying to develop weapons that impair brain function. The most famous example of this where they were caught was something known as the Moscow Signal, which occurred, I think uh, it was during the Cold War. I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s. But essentially, people that were working at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow determined that the background electromagnetic field or whatever for their building and just in certain parts of the building, like, you know, five or six floors would have, would be highly elevated and people would complain about some symptoms from it, but by and large, it was just this oddity. And eventually the CIA and other intelligence officials were able to figure out that Russian agents or Soviet agents at the time were had this death ray type device set up and they would rent an apartment across the street from the embassy and during working hours they would just blast it with electromagnetic waves and they would move it around so they could hit all four sides of the building during the course of their experiment but it, it largely didn't do anything but it, with the havana syndrome Things have been ratcheted up a notch. There's uh, one particularly damning report of a U.S. military officer who was stationed somewhere in Russia, and he was driving with his two-year-old son in the back seat, and as he approached a very busy and rather dangerous intersection, he reported that all of a sudden he felt this intense and painful pressure coming from inside his head. He thought his head was going to explode. And at the same moment, his two-year-old son just began screaming in pain in the back seat. And the officer, his kind of knee-jerk reaction was just to speed through the intersection. And as soon as he cleared the intersection, all the symptoms went away. He only felt it for that moment when he was going across the intersection. And, you know, he, of course instantly went to the doctors and the military doctors examined them and said, we have no idea what you experience. Sadly, U.S. investigators have been largely awful at conducting their investigations. Again, nobody's sharing information with anyone, which is lovely and frustrating. There's no consistency between the agencies and how they even define what the symptoms of the Havana syndrome are. The U.S. Office of Special Counsel, which is supposed to be kind of a watchdog group for the federal government, found that the State Department was much more interested in playing CYA than conducting an investigation. That's what their special panel was for, was to make sure none of the higher-ups got in trouble. 
A retired CIA official harshly criticized his former employer in the press, claiming that he was a victim of the syndrome and the CIA did everything it could to sweep his medical reports and complaints under the rug. This agent was ultimately uh, evaluated and treated by the U.S. government's own Walter Reed Medical Center, and they reached the conclusion that this agent had suffered traumatic brain injury. The Department of Defense got frustrated watching all these agencies just, you know, play tag with each other, try to run away and not share anything. So they tried to throw their weight around and they got involved because they kept getting reports from officers and civilian contractors and other important officials that something was going on here. And it was not just people in Havana. It was spread across the world in various locations. And so DOD comes in and basically says, we're all working together, whether y'all like it or not. And this um, kind of did nothing. <laughs> they didn't have the clout they thought they did to make this happen. The U.S. Senate began an investigation as well. But it would go no further than acknowledging that those that had suffered from this syndrome had suffered traumatic brain injuries, which is kind of a big deal, but we just left it there. There are persistent rumors that members of all 18 U.S. federal intelligence agencies have had some employees complain of Havana syndrome. And most, again, most of the insiders from these agencies have reached the unofficial conclusion that Russia is behind the attack. In February 2022, U.S. Intelligent Panel released a report claiming that the injuries were likely caused by pulsed electromagnetic energy delivered by an external device, but couldn't really narrow it down from there. So someone's got a magnet toy that can be used to mess with people's brains. Now, the justification for this conclusion is electromagnetic energies are easy to create without much of a power supply relative to other forms of energy that could cause these injuries. And because of this, these magnetic weapons could essentially be made portable. And because of the way the attacks are being carried out, um, and again, it's moved beyond Havana. We've had reports from places such as China, Russia, India, even officials in Washington, D.C. have experienced the Havana syndrome in one way or the other. Regardless of these reports, the CIA apparently just has dug in its heels and said that this is BS. There is no evidence of electromagnetic being used. In fact, it went so far as to call out the integrity of the panel, saying that how can they reach this conclusion when not a single member of the special panel has any significant experience with microwave energy? Now, I do, again, want to stress these injuries have been significant, okay? When doctors talk about persistent concussion-like injuries 
and traumatic brain damage, those are big words. Those are big, scary words, right? And those who experience the syndrome, who have spoken publicly about it, always tend to have one thing in common. They always tend to say, I thought I was going to die. That's how intense the pain is. That's how awful it becomes for these people. There was one report I read of a CIA official stationed overseas who was suffering from Havana syndrome. He was experiencing uh, vertigo. And it was so bad that he, if he tried to get out of bed, he couldn't walk towards the door in his bedroom. He could not physically bring himself to leave his bedroom because of how intense the vertigo was. In my opinion, not being an expert or a scholar on this, but, you know, if you've got one country that's making a weapon designed to hurt diplomatic and intelligence officials of another country or other countries, it seems awfully close to an act of war. But again, what do I know? Uh, we also have to factor in the psychological trauma this causes. Psychiatrists who studied these victims said that, you know, they are almost carbon copies of what you would see from World War I soldiers who are suffering from shell shock. Like, a lot of these people have become zombies. They just go through their day, but they don't really have a purpose to life anymore. And that's horrible to say, but I don't know a more accurate way to describe it. They're going through the motions of living without finding any enjoyment from life. And, you know, that coupled with the already stressful nature of their jobs, and then you have the higher-ups questioning whether you're really sick, it's not a good combination for one's mental health at all. So it's very worrisome that this is how, this is how people who are trying to protect the United States are being treated by their own government. So as for now, Havana syndrome is a real acknowledged illness that doesn't officially exist in any medical textbooks. And it seems like there's a good chance this is coming from a weapon created by the GRU, which is the Russian intelligence service. And I hope that we actually see some progress in investigating this because it seems like we want to sweep it under the rug more than we really want to find out what's going on. And that's, I, I don't, I don't know. That's just very sad to me to see. We, you know, you ask these people to risk their lives. And then when they suffer an injury, you, you know, kind of turn your back and like, ew, gross. No, I'm not helping you. I'm sure that's in an official report somewhere. The ew, gross part. Our third and final mystery that you may not have heard of, the story that we're going to end with is about a very strange missing persons case, because I know y'all love those. And this one even has a kind of cool name. It's the Frog Boys of South Korea. So our story takes place on March 26, 1991. Well, it begins there. It takes place over many years. Uh, it was a public holiday. It was an election day in South Korea, the first time they had had a local elections in 30-something years, I believe. And so there was no school. And you had these five kids who kind of lived in the small village, 
They were all neighbors. They were all roughly the same age, between nine and 13. And they hung out all the time whenever they had free time. So with a day off from school, nothing that they can really do. They decide they're going to go play in the nearby river and look for salamander eggs and other wildlife. You know, gross things that boys like to find, right? So they go out to the river and they poke around and then they never come home. Uh, when dinner's being served, the parents of the boys are worried. They all go talk to each other to see if the boys are, you know, at one of their houses. They can't find them anywhere. So the dads go out looking that night to see if they can find their sons. They were playing at this river. Well, let's go to the river and search. They go to the river and search and they find nothing. There's no evidence the boys have been there. There's no shoes left behind. They can't even find a footprint from the boys. So, you know, the next morning they report their son's missing. And for whatever reason, you know how some stories just go viral and we can't explain why. Well, here we have this monumentous event as far as the local elections going on in South Korea for the first time in decades. It's been dominating the news cycle. But this story of the missing five boys really catches the media's attention. And it became such a national story so quickly that the president himself at the time ordered 300,000 police officers and military personnel, search and rescue experts, those sorts, to go and help search for these lost boys. The local communities, this was a poor area of South Korea, but all the villages got together, raised a little bit of money, and basically posted a $35,000 reward for any information leading to finding these, these kids. All five of the boys' fathers, every single one of them, quit their job and made looking for their boys their full-time priority. I mean, without any exaggeration, we can describe the search effort as massive, right? Now, these hundreds of thousands of people, literally, searched every local river, pond, irrigation waterway, water reservoir. I mean, even mud puddles. Everything close to the water was searched and searched and searched. They also went to every bus depot and train station and showed the boys pictures around. No one had seen them. They clearly had not passed through any bus station or train station if the employees and the regular commuters there were to be believed. The streams of Mount Warriong, and this is the river that they played at were one of these streams uh, or one of these waterways. But these, these waterways, these rivers, these streams were searched by different groups 500 times. Okay? So that would mean you could get a group of four or five people, you'd walk up one stream, and you'd go to the next, you'd walk down it, and you do that, and as soon as you started on the second stream, there'd be another group of five or six people covering the stream that you just that you did first. I mean, it was a very organized and methodical search. And again, every bit of waterway was searched by different groups of people 500 times. 
We don't know how many searches overall were conducted on each body of water, but we know that 500 different groups of people searched and looked and tried to find evidence of these bullies. South Korean TV was there daily recording the search efforts. And the reporters were in on it too. They were walking through the waters. They were at train depots and everything like that. And just, they couldn't find anything either. The boys were missing. It was as if they were just teleported off earth, right? Four days after all this started, a stranger called one of the mothers. He claimed the boys were alive, but were suffering. In fact, two of them were very ill. And he said he would return them in exchange for a large amount of money. He gave the parent, the mother, the location where they could drop off the money and then their sons would be returned to them. They go there. The government gives them the money to, to get their sons back. They go there. They drop it off and they wait and they wait and they wait. But they never saw their son. They were there for hours past the time it was supposed to go down. Never saw their sons. So they left. They brought the money back to the government. They were feeling heartbroken, despondent, miserable. Everything you would be feeling if you lost a child. Rumors, of course, immediately started to swirl around. The most persistent rumor at the start of the investigation was that a mentally ill man was seen in the area that day and he likely kidnapped the children. Police tried to work this lead, but there weren't any details to work with. It was just, hey, I heard this from this guy down the street who heard it from this shop owner who heard it from this farmer, you know. The police claimed that they received about 500 leads during the initial phase of the investigation, but none of them bore any fruit. Now, despite the president ordering in hundreds of thousands of bodies to do the search, the parents and the police did not get along. And it was primarily because the police insisted that these five boys ran away. When the parents were insisting that that doesn't make any sense, there's no clothes missing, there's no food missing, there's no money missing. Why would they just get a wild hair and start walking into the unknown at such a young age? And they went back and forth on this. The police printed out all these pamphlets talking about missing children. The parents turned around and printed out their own pamphlets about their kids being kidnapped. The parents regularly would go on uh, media interviews and they would take every shot they could at the police, basically saying, they aren't taking this seriously. They think our boys just ran away. They did not. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know why they're sticking to that story. After one of these live broadcasts, another mother received a phone call. But by the time she could answer the phone, the call was disconnected. But the operator was on the line and she said, I'm so sorry. That was your son. He was crying. He was calling, saying he needed help. He wouldn't tell me where he was, and he hung up just before you picked up. Unfortunately, this would later prove to be a prank 
by the operator. And of course, this was not the only prank these poor parents had to suffer with. People took joy in tormenting these people, claiming, you know, oh, I have your boys, or oh, I know your boys are. Very, very good people there. But <clears throat> let's not forget, we got the dad patrol out, right? These five men have quit their jobs. They've bought a small bus. They have t they took the bus and they covered it with every bit of information that they could about their son. So anybody who was walking by, anybody who saw it parked while they were eating lunch or something, they could learn a whole bunch about these missing boys really quick. And of course, the dads are combing villages and towns, handing out flyers and pamphlets, asking, you know, if anyone's seen their boys. And they're not staying local. They are literally taking like an across-the-country tour of South Korea, handing out all these flyers, all this information, begging people to let them know if they've seen their children. The media became fixed on the idea that where these boys went missing was kind of a stone's throw away from a local military base. And there were lots of cries made by newspapers and talk show hosts as to why is the military not being investigated? There are people armed, literally from where the boys were last thought to be, to where this military base was, was something like 300 meters. It was not far. I mean, that's close enough that some people were thinking, you know, during some sort of shooting practice, there was a rogue bullet that may have struck one of the boys and the military intervened to cover up the tragedy. There's, you know, some locals even support this theory by claiming that they heard shooting going on at the military base and it abruptly ended when a, a loud scream came from the base. They said it sounded like a child's or a young woman's scream. Now, when we get to the second year of the search, which the parents never let up on, there was a bad twist for the parents in this case. There was a respected criminologist in South Korea who had been studying this case from day one. And he went on TV and made the bold accusation that one of the parents was responsible for the kidnapping and murder of the boys. He built his case largely around the fact that this particular father couldn't account for where he was for three hours on the day the boys disappeared. The criminologist also boldly predicted that the bodies of all five boys would be found buried on this man's property. For some reason, this was all the police needed. Uh, apparently, there are not many criminologists in South Korea, or at least at this time, there were not. And so to have someone of such academic prestige come out and make an accusation, that was good enough for the police to take action. So they literally go and get a backhoe and begin tearing apart the family's land looking for any evidence of a dead child. The media is there, they're filming, they're watching. Neighbors are pressed in shoulder to shoulder watching this macabre display. You have had people travel from other cities just to come watch what they believe to be the unveiling of the truth. 
but despite the police best efforts to destroy this father's property, nothing was ever found. That father would die two years later after suddenly developing a very advanced form of lung cancer that spread rapidly. The other parents to this day believe it was really the stress and exhaustion of being accused after working so hard to find his boy that really did him in. So he fast forward to 2002. The boys have been missing since 1991. So we're 11 years later. And on September 26th of that year, either a man or a pair of men who were hiking halfway for fun, halfway to collect acorns, were on kind of a popular trail not far from the village when they found something odd sticking out from the earth. They went, or he went, and kind of dug around and discovered that it was a small body. Naturally, the police are alerted, and everybody rushes to this crime scene. The police instantly, you know, take over the scene and start sorting through everything. They dig up all the bodies. They found, you know, some oddities. The most peculiar thing being that one boy's pants was tied across his face, kind of like a blindfold. And in the knot of where the legs are tied together behind the boy's back, when they undid it, bullets fell out, as well as some spent cartridges. But unfortunately, the police who responded first to the crime scene had no training in forensic investigations or even how to preserve a crime scene. By the time a forensic expert could make it to the crime scene, they had to send one, send one from a bigger city. Uh, he said the scene was a mess. It was ruined and there was almost nothing he could do or gather from the scene because not only had police been all too eager to dig up the bodies they had also decided to organize the bones in a very bizarre way. Like they clumped all the skulls together. They clumped all the long bones, you know, like the the thigh bone and the arm bones and all that. They put those in a group. They put all the little bones in another group. It was just a mess. All the clothing that was found was removed from the... The police kind of wanted to take the narrative by the tail and they quickly issued a statement before the bodies could even be taken to a coroner or medical examiner, the local police chief issued a statement saying it was clear to him that these boys had died from hypothermia. And instantly, nobody bought this theory. In fact, some of the search and rescue personnel that were called in, known as the Korean Alpine Federation, immediately said, that's ridiculous. The bodies are found at too low an elevation. Even if they were just covered in pouring rain, they would be uncomfortable, but they wouldn't risk hypothermia. And you know what? Even if they were so cold, it was literally a five-minute walk from where the boys were found to the first house in the village where the boys lived. A five-minute walk. That's how close these bodies were. And let's think about that point for a minute. Remember, Every bit of stream and waterway was searched by 500 different groups an untold number of times. 
you would have to think and expect, even though this is not plainly stated anywhere, that all the areas surrounding this village were just as thoroughly checked. Yet here we have all five bodies being found in a shallow grave five walking minutes from the kids' home. And we can't overlook the fact that the bones are in a shallow grave, meaning somebody buried them, right? The only reason the hiker had found these bodies is because their grave had kind of eroded away with time and some of the fabric from some of their clothing was sticking out of the dirt. <clears throat> now, in the midst of all this, the police also announced that they had evaluated the bullets and cartridges found on the scene and concluded that they were identical to the ammunition used at the local military base. The base commander, of course, immediately came out firing, saying, this is stupid. Children don't just walk across our base. This was a very important holiday, so no drills or any training was scheduled for that day. Nobody was out on the firing range, so it's not like a rogue bullet came and did some damage. He did admit that officers were always free to use the firing range when they wanted to, but there was no record that such had occurred on that day. Regardless, no one was allowed to come on the base to search, and no members of the military were permitted to be questioned about this. When the bodies were actually evaluated by forensic experts in a controlled you know, lab or morgue, wherever they took them, they noticed that all the children had suffered blunt force trauma injuries to their heads. Several of the skulls had sharp cuts going into the bone. That was obviously unnatural. Again, we had that one kid that had his shirt tied or his pants tied around his face. So he could not see, presumably, the attacks that were coming to kill him. Another child had two bullet wounds in his head, but these wounds were not from the military-style ammunition that was found with the bodies. The experts believe that the bullets actually came from an air rifle. Now, the parents, to this day, believe that it was the military who was behind this. Not that they sought out to kill their children, but that there was an accident. One of the children was hit by a bullet. The men, the soldiers, didn't know the proper way to react to this. So they thought, if we eliminate all the witnesses and bury them, this problem won't be our problem anymore. Police have the opinion that the murders were not premeditated, but were the result of someone flying into a rage. But they don't point towards any evidence in support of this claim. Forensic experts who worked with the bodies believe that, you know, this was such a gruesome murder that it could have been from a budding serial killer. But they also temper that by saying, We've never seen any other murders like this. So it's hard to believe that a serial killer would be involved when there's been five victims and presumably one transaction and no more. 
to this day, no one's ever given an explanation that conforms with the evidence and satisfies the mystery here. Um, you know, to me, it seems obvious that they were kidnapped and killed and probably buried in a remote part of Korea. And then after this exhaustive searching had concluded around the village, they probably brought the boys' bodies back, dug a hole late one night, and buried them, knowing that it would never be exhaustively searched there again. I mean, in a sick way, this is a very smart way to go about things. You know, if, if, you've, if you've checked this spot 500 times and found nothing there, why would you search it a 501st time? It was really just by chance that the boy's grave was even found. I personally don't believe the military would be involved. I suppose there's a chance that some sort of psychopath had enlisted in the military and was stationed at this base. And because it was a holiday and everything was kind of lax, you know, he saw these four boys off on their own and he could get his perverted pleasure out of it. But if he was a member of the military, it's not like he could just disappear for 48 hours to go hide these bodies and get his life in order, right? He would have to keep the bodies somewhere close by and everywhere close by was checked, but the military base. But it's hard to imagine a soldier being able to dig a grave big enough to hold five bodies and not be seen by somebody else. You know, you'd have to be exceptionally clever or exceptionally lucky to pull that off. By the same token, though, you have the military ammunition found on the scene. And, you know, if this dude is a psychopath and he gets transferred to another base shortly after these killings, Maybe he is a serial killer. Maybe he is learning his trade. And maybe he's kind of evolving in his MO as he gets older and older and learns more and more. And so it's possible that murders from other parts of the country could that have not been solved could come from this one man to the extent that we believe this theory. Um, you know, I do think that the killer was probably a man who had an unhealthy obsession with children and saw what the boys were doing and told them something along the lines of, whoa, y'all are looking for, you know, lizards and salamanders and frogs. Don't look here. I got the spot for you. Follow me. You lead them off further into the unknown and it would be easy to kidnap them or kill them without being Whiskey, risking any witnesses seeing what you're doing. And, you know, because you had such a thorough search that came up with nothing, and then you find the bodies in the exact same spot where the searches were conducted, and the police ruined the crime scene and destroyed whatever forensic evidence would have been there, I think the odds of this mystery ever being solved are quite low. I have to mention this too. There, there's two wild theories that receive some real play in the South Korean press. Um, and I, I throw them in just because they add a bit of levity as 
we end this tale. The first was that North Korean soldiers snuck down into South Korea and kidnapped these four boys, tortured them, and killed them. While South Korea and North Korea aren't, you know, BFFs, the boys went missing 185 miles away from the North Korean line. Um, so that would take quite a heroic effort to sneak that far into this enemy land to kidnap five boys who were not uh, from wealth. They did not grow up in a politically powerful family. I mean, not to be ugly, but they were just average Joes. I mean, in the grand scheme of things in the war between South Korea and North Korea, they were nothing. There's no strategic value. There's no political value in taking these children or killing them. So why would you go 185 miles behind enemy lines just to commit a random murder? It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, the second wild theory involves, of course, aliens. That's right. Spacemen came down, abducted the boys, and returned them 11 years later in slightly used condition, as in, you know, dead, and decided that they needed to bury the evidence in a shallow grave. That That's all the evidence we have to supporters, just the idea that A, aliens exist, B, they were visiting South Korea, C, they wanted five little boys, D, they decided to kill them, and E, instead of just throwing them into the sun or something like that, they brought them back home and buried them in a very shallow grave. Makes sense to me. So there you have it. Three fun mysteries you may not have heard of. I hope you haven't heard about them, so all of this was new and exciting and fresh to you. Otherwise, this, this may have been a waste of an episode. Huh. Got to... Gotta do some real thinking about my life right now. Hmm. Um, anyway, I love episodes like this. True crimes are bread and butter, but these are fun little breaks. And it's always fun to learn about mysteries that make the world more exciting and interesting. Speaking of interesting, Lil Joe has insisted on supplying the palate cleanser for this week. He just kind of usurped Mr. Eli out of the blue. And there was nothing I could do to stop it. So here's our little man's joke. Notice it is not keeping in theme, although it'd be hard to find a theme for this episode. Anyway, how do you cheat? How do you teach chickens math? How would you go about teaching math to chickens? All you have to do is sit there and show them lots of egg examples. Examples. Yeah, that's. That's on par for a first grade joke, right? I think so. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. We love you all so, so much. You really put the chocolate chips in our cookies. We will be back next week, hopefully, with a real true crime story. If my little brain allows for such. Otherwise, we may just find something goofy and fun to play around with again. Please, if you haven't before, take a moment to give us a good rating. We love seeing five stars out there. They're kind of what help our show grow a lot and show other people that, you know, we're not just some joke of a podcast, even though between you and me, we know that's not true. 
But, uh, well, you know, we appreciate it. You can also follow us on social media and sing our praises there. Lots of ways, lots and lots of ways to uh, really inflate my ego. So look into that. I'll see you guys next Tuesday. Godspeed, little ones. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.